the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Broken Mirrors Reform and Seven Years Bad Luck runs backwards in a radiating pattern from a warehouse in Bentonsport, Iowa, as improbability drive invents itself from 20 spilled wingnuts, a stray kitten, and mixing a barrel of maid rights with a bushel of scotcheroos. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part interview. Mike Massa talking about the new book he's written with John Ringo. This is a continuation of the Black Tide Rising science-based zombie series, and it takes place near the beginning of John's solo series opener, Under a Graveyard Sky. That's the very beginning of the zombie plague as it begins to affect the east coast of the U.S. in particular. This book is called The Valley of Shadows, and Mike will tell us a lot more about it in a moment. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The trees may be bare in November, but we have some pretty nice leaves of paper to brighten up your autumn, since the Bain November trade paperback and mass market paperback are ad booksellers. Hey, first we have Hocus Pocus by Gordon R. Dixon and Paul Anderson. Hoka's friendly fuzzy aliens resembling teddy bears with very vivid imaginations. They also have a hard time distinguishing between human fact and fiction, or in this case, the present from the past. So when a Hoka thinks he's Napoleon Bonaparte, you'd better believe it, especially since it may be your best chance for survival on a hostile alien world. And now out in mass market is The Spark by David Drake. In the time of the ancients, the universe was united, but that was far in the past. Now only broken artifacts remain. A few humans, known as makers, can reshape these into their original uses, but chaos rules. Now Pal, a youth from the sticks, has come to the capital. He's about to learn how far he has to go and what he must sacrifice to become a true champion. And don't forget, in January, the sequel to The Spark is coming out. That's called The Storm, so you can get The Spark and get ready for the storm that's brewing soon. Hocus Pocus by Gordon R. Dixon and Paul Anderson and The Spark by David Drake are now out at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of an interview with Mike Massa talking about the Valley of Shadows. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Mike Massa to the podcast. Hello, Mike. Hi, Tony. How are you doing this evening? Pretty good. Um, Mike Massa has lived a diverse and adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer. Yeah. Yep, yep. No, I'm sorry. I was just giving the traditional uh, SEAL uh, greeting, which is hoo Oh, I see. <laughs> I see. <laughs> An international advance, investment banker, do they have a call? And, uh, yes, it's called Show Me the Money. I see. And an internet technologist. Um, Mike is currently at a university cyber uh, 
Mike is currently a uh, university cybersecurity researcher, consulted by governments, Fortune 500 companies, and high net worth families on issues of privacy, resilience, and disaster recovery. He lives. He has lived outside the U.S. for several years, plus military deployments, and has traveled to over 80 countries. He's the author of a bunch of short stories, and now with John Ringo, the co-author of The Valley of Shadows, a new entry in the Black Tide Rising series. You've got, uh, you, got Matricardi, um, who is, has an interesting... Uh, it, it, why did you think that the mob was was a natural uh, or a reasonable um, thing to call in here? You, I mean, you mentioned something about that, that they, they they run a sort of barter economy. They do. Um, they very much do. I I didn't want to uh, aggravate any actual existing, uh, shall we say, entrepreneurial organization, so I made one out of a whole cloth. Um, I'm a my parents, my grandparents immigrated from uh, Italy in the 20s, and so I have a very strong ethnic Italian-American family. I mean, we, we identify as Americans first, but we're very proud uh, of our conducts in the old country. And, and if you grow up in a culturally Italian-American neighborhood like I did as a fishing neighborhood, you become aware, just sort of by living there, of how things operate. And I won't say it was Goodfellas level of shenanigans, but there's definitely shenanigans. And there's definitely um, a gray economy that these cultural enclaves operate within. And this, I naturally sort of uh, extended that and created this character, uh, Frank Matricardi. I think it's, and that's a, it's a, a terrific name uh, that uh, corresponds well with some of the, you know, the well-known um, Italian mobsters of the Prohibition era. That we're running, you know. Now those families are very, uh, are very um, uh, upright and uh, and proud. But back in the day, you know, running uh, uh, whiskey, Canadian whiskey across the Great Lakes region and down the East Coast was that was pretty illegal. And uh, the famous mob bosses of yore were morally flexible because they they wanted to make a buck. And so Frank Montricardi, he wants to make a buck. And one of the ways he makes a buck that that brings him into contact with Smith is uh, through who uh, illegally caught and distributed seafood, which is, a in the real world, a multi-billion-dollar business every year. I think on the order of 3 or $4 billion a year, illegally caught wild seafood. And distributing that into, uh, into places where it's in high demand doesn't happen through normal channels. And so he has this sort of barter gray economy. So if you want to move source... You know, the ingredients for your vaccine and the vaccine itself, guys like Matricardi are pretty helpful. But they're not the natural allies of people like Joanna and, uh, and the cops. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I can't remember exactly, but in a way, Tom brings them together because he needs them. He does. He, he figures out. So in, in Under Graveyard Sky, I don't think we're going to be spoiling anything, uh, the main characters figure out that the only way to make a stopgap vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine, which means you need to have a source of live virus. And where does live virus exist? Well, it exists in infected people. So for the 95, I think for the most of the readership of this novel initially will be people who've read one or more of those books. That's going to be old news. Um, 
but there's no way that any one organization can, on an industrial scale, manufacture enough vaccine to tide civilization, the centers of civilization over until big pharma can catch up because they're doing so, you know, they're not to put uh, a fine point on it, but they're harvesting infected humans. And they know they're, they've lost their minds and it's not, it's not reversible as, as uh, both uh, Steve Smith's character and Tom Smith's character say, whenever they kill a zombie, they're fully cognizant. They're, they're killing a human being and it bothers them a lot. But it's the only way through. The only way out of the crisis is through, and that's what they do. But you can't scale if you don't have someone like Amatricardi and their organization that you know, can pull in hundreds or thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds or perhaps thousands of people in their extended economic network that is not the official economy to begin ginning up these, these activities. And so that's why Frank's part of it. Uh, Joanna's part of it because... She has her fingers everywhere in the city in terms of disaster relief, um, uh, business continuity, and crisis management. That's, that's the function of her multi-thousand person office. And, of course, the cops are all self-explanatory. They're law and order. They're on the streets everywhere. And, of course, the banks have the financial angle. And, and they can underwrite this because the money to do this isn't going to come out of the city. <laughs> they're not going to directly – no mayor would directly fund the wholesale murder of infected people. So how do you do that? And that's with this cartel. Well, you have some uh, some pretty gruesome. Uh, it looks like you did a lot of research on how one would take a spinal cord out of a of a freshly killed person. Actually, um, I uh, consulted with a couple of surgeons. I consulted with a couple of butchers. I've actually uh, I'm a hunter, so I've um, I've harvested uh, a few deer and an elk. And uh, I know just how messy it gets. And then I tried to imagine doing that on a wholesale basis. And I'm like, oh, my God, that'd be, that'd be horrible. And one of the ways you deal with things that are really horrible is you introduce sort of this dark gallows humor. And a lot of my characters do that. Uh, it's a very human reaction to almost intolerable situations is you, you use joking, uh, pretty awful joking, as an emotional defense. And my characters definitely do that. Yeah, because the this this the spinal cord like breaks off and it's connected to all this other gunk. Yes, it is. You have to in you have to do it very carefully. You can't hurry through it. Um, and of course, this is highly infectious material. So you're wearing a cumbersome set of exposure gear and a respirator. You're handling very sharp instruments. Um, you don't want to spoil. You know, you, it's hard enough to collect the dang material in the first place. You don't want to spoil it. And so it's, uh, it's kind of dicey. In fact, one of the interesting characters that John and I created for this book uh, that works for the mobster, for Frank Matricardi, comes up with the idea of how do, you know, how do we find people who already have some of the skills to, pro- call, we'll call it processing, process the harvest in an industrial scale, and they're not going to lose their minds doing it because the average person you know, isn't capable of doing that. And so we meet a new character um, who's persistent in the first book and in, and in the second book, uh, and she's a real character. She's a, um, uh, we'll call her a, a Slavic um, entertainer who we are introduced to as the girlfriend of the gangster mall, if you will, of Frank Matricardi. And she ends up being a lot more than just ornamental. She has a real core of steel uh, at the center of her. 
Yeah, and there's some viewpoints. Uh, this, we're talking about old, old risk, uh, uh, risky. Risky. And you you do some nice viewpoints from her, and, and we come to really like her. She's a winning character. Um, she has an interest, and in, in, correct me if I'm wrong, but she seems to be connected to the Kildare universe. I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the first thing about that. Uh huh. Okay. But uh, she's really cool, and she um, she's sort of the moral uh, conscience of this mobster, right? In a strange way, she tries to be. She she was someone who was a victim of human trafficking, and uh, at a very and multiple times, and was you know snatched from progressively worse and worse situations until um, the people at the end of the supply chain, um, tried to market her to Matricardi. Now, the thing about Matricardi is he has limits. He, there's some things he just will not do, some things he will not abide, like, like, a, like a Tony Soprano. You know, I know I'm not a good guy, and I know I do a lot of bad stuff, but I got my limits, you see? And one of the things we don't do, we don't, we don't mess with women, we don't mess with kids. It's hard, you know, you work for me, you, mess, you do that, I put you in the ground. So when someone tries to um, sell risky to him, he takes that really personally, and they they form a relationship on the basis of that. Uh, that then turns into more of a more of a partner relationship than just you know someone that's ornamental and and uh, available other ways as well. And she has you know because of what's happened to her, she's seen she knows what happens. She intrinsically understands what it's like when law and order breaks down, when civilization goes away. And because she knew how she she knows better than most how bad it can get, she's also more likely to make the jump when things begin to go horribly awry and encourage others to do the same. And so that puts her sort of in opposition to Tom Smith, who's you know, he's Mr. I'm gonna do whatever it takes. We're gonna last as long as it, as we have to. We're gonna see it through. We took the money, this is our job. And she's like, hey pal, at some point yeah, got to look. You got to look out for what's really at stake here. It's more than just money. It's more than just the bank. And that's going to be uh, that's a, a theme that I hope uh, resonates with the audience. Um, but those two are not are not uh, initially aligned. And she's a real interesting a really interesting uh, character. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So as conditions deteriorate, um, and I mean, those of you who have read the series know things are not going to get better and <laughs> until until they get much worse. So, um, what is Tom's response, and how is he holding up mentally and emotionally going into the to the to the real um, hard times? Tom is is uh, a little more complex than the the hearty sort of um strong resilient exterior would suggest he's you know he's already shown that he's prepared to bend the rules and take some personal risk to take care of family you know when he first early in the book uh breaks the rules and leaks this information putting himself in the bank frankly at substantial legal risk and if the emergency hadn't been so dire that would have had tremendous consequences for him personally um but by and large he lives up to his own interpretation of this pledge to serve the bank, to serve the economy, to serve the, the greater good, if you will, because he, you know, he pledged his word. 
And as things get progressively worse, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be struggling to, to keep this coalition together because he really believes, he's a true believer, you know, if we wait just long enough, maybe just long enough, we'll turn the corner, we'll be able to mass produce this stuff without this terrible harvesting thing that we're doing now, and we can literally save the world. That's what he's thinking of. He's thinking big, but he, to him, saving the world means we have to keep the economy moving. If he manages to save a lot of people, but there's no infrastructure to grow crops, distribute food, make fuel, fix cars, have hospitals, then you've lost. You have to keep the infrastructure. And he's, he's really maybe over-focused on that. And, um, you know, he, he, I don't want to give too much away, but he will come to a point where he has to evaluate, like everybody else, is it time to jump? And then he has to persuade his boss, hey, it's time to jump. And that's even harder. You know, it's, it's really hard to separate a banker from their money. It's even harder to get the banker out of a market. So that's something that the bankers struggle with in, in both real life and in, in, this, in this book. Yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, that, that uh, the, the metaphor of the Roman soldier taking salt, um, you, you come back to again and again. It's something that means a lot to Tom. Um, if you take the salt, you, you owe your, your, your loyalty. Exactly. It's uh, whether things go well or they don't go well, you stick with it. And that's, that's a real-world dynamic that, that many veterans, especially when they're fresh out of the military, um, struggle with because that they are applying this rubric, this rule of thumb. Hey, I said yes. I took the money. I'm going to do what I said. And that's not something that is nearly as common in, say, an all-civilian traditional workforce. And it's one of the things that veterans have to uh, find a way to adjust as they settle into their, I'll call it their corporate lives. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a very real phenomenon, and uh, I, was, I was very comfortable including that because it's, uh, it's based on both personal experience, both my own uh, experience and observing, without exaggeration, um, scores of other veterans firsthand struggling with that as well, especially, most especially, from the special ops community, where the sense of team and group identity is so profound because it's a survival mechanism for special operators. And the SEALs like to say, there is no I in SEAL team. <laughs> Although, of course, now there's a SEAL say, plenty of I's in, the, in movie contracts, isn't there? So the, uh, the notion that once, uh, once I've given my word isn't just tied to honor, it's also tied to this, this sense of, if we don't work together, things are going to go horribly pear-shaped. And that's something that uh, Tom feels uh, innately. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it's hard for um, for veterans. I'm not a veteran, um, to, but I've also felt the same thing just from being a Southerner. Maybe I don't know what the hell. Just the the you know you you start a job and but it, it's time to move on, and you just it, it's hard to go to another employer. You know, it's like um, because it's it's like you're being committed to a country in a way. Yeah, there's it's, it's a sense of identity as well. Uh, those things all play together. They all they all reinforce each other. Um, and our characters, uh, the veterans that have, you know, Tom in particular, really feel that keenly. Um, and there's some foils, some characters that serve as foils for Tom's emotion, and they try and uh, they try and discuss this with them. Among them. As I've noted before, is risky. 
So, Mike, a lot of a lot of readers are going to be wondering about um, your background. We talked a little bit about it before, but I, I I find it very interesting in how it applies to your writing as well, um, and how you became a writer from from um, this uh, military background. Now, you told us that you had grown up in a in a military family, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's right. My my father uh, enlisted in World War II. He entered uh, something called the Flying Midshipman Program and uh, became a piston engine fighter pilot. His first airplane uh, operational aircraft after the training command was the F-8F Bearcat. And after uh, World War II, there was a, a, a large-scale demobilization, and they simply didn't need the thousands of fighter pilots they had. So he was offered uh, not really a dream job. He could stay in and fly a much less attractive aircraft, a, a big patrol, a big slow maritime patrol aircraft, or get out. So he chose to stay in. And he uh, transitioned to something called a, a PB4Y2, a modified B-24 Liberator bomber used for maritime surveillance and patrol, and then uh, upgraded to the first purpose-built aircraft for that um, use, which was the P2B2 Neptune. And um, right after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, he was sent to test pilot school and transitioned yet again to the uh, to helicopters. Um, and... Uh, that's where, you know, with the helicopter background, he did three things. He he uh, flew um, anti-submarine warfare patrols. He flew uh, in three efforts to recover, successfully recover uh, space capsules, one from each of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, and uh, also flew search and rescue off Yankee Station in Vietnam. But when he finished his flying years, and he was a Navy captain, he was sent as the senior defense attache to Argentina. And uh, that's where, I, about the time, you know, my mom and dad were uh, uh, very strong, staunch, traditional Catholics. And so there was a noticeable gap between their first tranche of four children in five years and then nearly a decade and along wandered the youngest master, which is myself. And so about the time that dad was a very senior officer, uh, I was growing up in Argentina. And he had a double tour in Argentina, in part because uh, this was the Peronista years when um, – General Perón and Evita Perón ran the country, and there was a, it was a rather um, tense time in South America at that point. And uh, so I grew up speaking Spanish, and then we relocated back to the States. And that, so I, I began with a, a very different look at a very different culture, and then we, then we moved back to Louisiana, to New Orleans, which is yet another very different sort of culture from what all can, you know, characterize either of the American coasts or Midwest America. And then uh, ended up going to school in, uh, in California, getting my degree at UCLA. And again, uh, yet another very distinct culture from where I'd grown up. So I've, I've become sort of this person that um, I feel like I come from everywhere. Uh, I don't feel like I have a, a birth city. I just be moved so much. And yeah, uh, when I became yeah. an officer myself, and I, when I went to school and uh, became got commissioned and went into the, the SEAL program, you typically move around a great deal between training at home uh, and training overseas and then deploying overseas. You're, you're very much on the move everywhere you go, which is how I came to, to have traveled to so many different countries. And then having gotten out, uh, I went into uh, technology consulting, and um, I ended up uh, you know, living in places as diverse as Germany and China um, in, the, uh, in the late 90s and early noughts. Um, before I ended up finding myself in um, in banking, and of course that took me back to Europe and to the Middle East, Africa, 
and uh, throughout the Americas and lived in a, a bunch of cities. So it, I'm, I feel myself be very fortunate to have seen so much of the world and sampled so many cultures, uh, and that definitely informs my writing very, very much. And, of course, in this book in particular, we have uh, a setting, New York, an industry, the financial services industry, and characters with backgrounds, um, I won't say entirely like my own, not entirely like my own, but, but certainly within shouting distance. And I, that definitely informed some of what I think are the more authentic details that I included for the, the sharp-eyed reader. Uh, that reader will be rewarded by seeing things that actually are pretty darn accurate, and that's by design. Yeah. Well, what? how old were you when you left Argentina? I was eight years old. Wow, so yeah, you got a taste of it that you remember. Well, I remember I remember Argentina with great clarity, uh, and I spoke I spoke fluent Spanish. Um, my mom uh, took advantage of the, uh, and I don't mean this in, in any any at all pejorative way, but mom had grown up uh, very very poor during the depression, and then she was a young naval officer's wife in the 40s and 50s and 60s, which was not a a uh, by any means a glamorous life or a well funded life. And suddenly she's living as a diplomat's spouse in a country which was very much about aristocratic privilege and very much about uh, almost a feudal society, you know, this, the, the era of, uh, of General Perón. And so part of the living arrangements in Argentina for senior officers and members of senior, people that held senior diplomatic posts, uh, you, it came with a very fancy house and it came with a staff. And her staff included a chef, an assistant chef, two nannies, several guards, a couple gardeners, two or three drivers, and they all, they have, they all lived in the outbuildings of this estate where the Argentine government um, housed this particular uh, diplomatic post, which is true for all of the posts from any country. So for the first time, Mom had help in the kitchen, had help around the house, and uh, I, I learned how to speak two different languages, uh, Guarani, which is a language of the indigenous Indians of Paraguay, that being the origin of my... Uh, national origin of one of my nannies, and, of course, Spanish. But it's a very, it's a very peculiar sort of aristocratic Spanish that the, you know, only the Argentines really speak. It's as distinctive oh, yeah. to the trained yeah. ear as the Castilian Spanish of uh, that region. Yeah. I, was, um, I married an Argentine in another life, and we we're divorced now, but, <laughs> and I was down there a bit. So, uh, yeah, they, they call it Castellano, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's very different from uh, from anything that uh, that you've heard elsewhere. Well, that's cool. And then they dumped your mom in Louisiana without a staff, right? <laughs> After then she finds herself in the garden spot of New Orleans, Louisiana, in the uh, in the mid seventies. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's very much uh, very different from the uh, metropolitan aristocratic environment that she'd been enjoying to that point in Argentina. Uh, and, of course, it's a very mild climate. There's no humidity. There's no bugs in New Orleans. Absolutely not. There's certainly no hurricanes, cough, cough, uh, Hurricane Camille. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a culture shock. Welcome back to the United States. So for a young so you, boy re- returning to yeah. the United States in the, in the deep south with limited command of English, it was definitely a wake-up call for me. Yeah. Well, we don't really speak. That 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 strange accent you have now, even in the South, yet, <laughs> so you've got a California accent, it seems. So, how did you, all right? So you went to college. Um, how did did you always think you were going to go into the military, 
Um, and how the heck did you decide you're going to be a seal and how did you, or did it decide for you? I, I very much, uh, idolized my father. He was a huge influence in my life. Um, and, uh, he actually, he passed away two years ago and that's why I've, I've dedicated, uh, this book to my, my show, the dedication underneath that of, uh, from John to Cat Malong is from myself to, uh, to Cat Mead Massa and, um, father's, uh, service certainly influenced my selection of branch, the Navy. And initially I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll be um, um, someone who's in submarines because that's very, uh, you know, Tom Clancy's uh, Hunter Red October come out. It made submarines look really interesting um, for my, um, my, my apprentice tour, which is the first um, college based sea tour that you do. It's basically a summer. It can be anywhere from a two week period to the entire summer and I was deployed, I was sent to as a, a very true member of the crew, a midshipman, third class massa, was sent to USS Von Steuben, SSBN 632 Blue Crew. And we actually did uh, a very unusual patrol in that we, we did a nuclear deterrence patrol, which is with a submarine exit support, and mm -hmm. goes and hides somewhere in the ocean and listens very carefully for the message of Armageddon, which, thank God, in so many years has never come. But... Uh, then we returned to port, and we offloaded two missiles and took on two new birds, and I was actually on board when they fired those missiles for practice at Kwajalein Atoll, um, something, ironically, 35 years later, in, it partially informs a detail that I put into um, the second uh, novel with John called River of Night, scheduled for next summer. And uh, But that, that tour, being in that submarine for... 61 days consecutively submerged at one stretch, uh, really opened my eyes. And I said to myself, self, submarines are not for you. What are we going to do next? So I had a chance uh, the next summer to spend time with the aviation community, and uh, I had a chance to hop on a, on a turkey. It's a NF-14 Tomcat, and I flew in the back seat for a couple hours and did some fun stuff. And then I flew in a TA-4J, and that was fun. And then I discovered that my eyes had just the teeny tiniest flaw, so I couldn't be a pilot. So that was right out. And that left ships. I, my third summer for my apprentice cruise, midshipman first class NASA, went on board uh, USS Whitby Island, was it? LSD-42. And uh, gosh, I discovered that being a surface warfare officer was not going to be for me. I said, huh, that's, submarines no, aviation no, ships no. What's, what's left? There's this thing called SEAL. I'm like, well, yeah, they work out a lot. They're on the beach. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll give that a try. And I'm, I'm speaking somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I, I knew a bit more than that about the program. And it actually provided uh, – yeah, I was aware of the attrition. And, and perversely, that, the very fact of the very high attrition was attractive to me because I wanted to accomplish something um, where statistically the odds were against me. And in the event of success, it would be due to my will and my will alone – and that's a that's a very common thread amongst people who have who've uh, been attracted to buds. That challenge is very uh, seductive in a, in a certain kind of way. And so I applied and uh, competed and was selected for a spot to go to the buds, and uh, eventually graduated after uh, one particularly um, significant injury. I had to go uh, have an operation and and do a few other bits and pieces to get myself uh, back in back in shape, and then um, eventually re re re. Um, Restarted and finished that time, and then went to the teams. And uh, eight years later, uh, got out after having completed uh, several deployments, both as an assistant officer in charge and later as an officer in charge of a SEAL platoon uh, and a tasking it uh, commander. 
which is where you have more than a SEAL platoon or more than one operating element assigned to you uh, when you're deployed and downrange, in this case in the Middle East. And uh, I got out and uh, began my civilian career. And a lot of the things that I learned as a SEAL technically obviously would not apply. But um, special warfare operators in part are selected for their, their native curiosity and an ability to, to soak up new information, to swat up a new discipline rapidly. And that very much uh, applied to my civilian transition and, in fact, has, has been a part of my life since then, um, looking for a new challenge, um, identifying and soaking up a new technical discipline and, uh, and then striking out in that direction anew. And, and so being, um, hopefully, what will be a successful um, effort in becoming a science fiction and fantasy author will feature some of that same um, ability to learn rapidly, suck up a lot of new information, uh, build new friendships and relationships, and, uh, and successfully we are reading, um, a reading fan base. So we'll see how that goes. Cross fingers. Yeah, sure. And believe me, it's, it's tough. It's, and a lot of people wash out <laughs> some with injuries to their brains. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate uh, to have been invited by Bain uh, to co-write with John and to contribute not only to uh, in John's universe, but to uh, the universes and the intellectual property created by other Bain writers like Mike Williamson, like Chuck Gannon, um, uh, like Tom Crapman, like Larry Correa. Yeah, but you wouldn't, I mean, you know, you got, John pulled you out of, out of, uh, I mean, the, a lot of people wrote for, and, and some very good writers uh, wrote for the, you know, for the uh, Black Tide Rising series, but there, you, you have a, a real quality to your work. I mean, I was just joking. Um, you, you got, you got good chops, um, and I have no doubts you're gonna, you're gonna blaze a trail in science fiction. So what, what does, all right, your former SEAL, uh, I guess you would call it retired. Um, not like you got kicked out. <laughs> Crapman once got on to me about saying um, I was honorably separated. I have an honorable discharge. Uh, I did not yeah. retire. I, I have uh, 12 years total service, and um, that was a, a several years short of a completed retirement. That was the second part of an interview with Mike Massa talking about the Valley of Shadows. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them. He united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. 
and when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Who is it this time? One of them asked. A pair of Havildars from the coast, a woman answered. The young man chuckled. Has our house grown that desperate? What do you know of desperate? Sixty of our best soldiers have tried and failed. Ten of our own caste have been carried from this hall, cuts or missing limbs. The woman sounded very angry, so the boy squished as far back into the corner as possible. Though he understood everything she said, her words were different than castless speech, clear and not nearly so rough. These two were of the first caste. The angry woman continued. We've been without our ancestor blade for nearly a month. The other houses are circling like vultures, and there are open discussions in the capital about our shame. If the sword does not choose soon, it will be seen as a sign of weakness. My apologies, mother, but a mere Havildar, that's a nothing rank. Normally it would choose our greatest. For it to pick someone so low would be unseemly. They are both young, but accomplished enough. Regardless, we are far beyond courtly matters now. The warrior caste is troubled. There are whispers that perhaps Angruvadal will not deem anyone worthy to wield it. If no one is chosen, then its magic will die. Other houses' ancestor blades have died before, usually from treachery or dishonor. But whatever the reason, those great houses have perished soon after their swords. Perhaps you should try to take Angruvadal up yourself, firstborn. I'm not the soldier father was. Of course you're not harder, and we'd hate for it to mark up that pretty face of yours. Now be silent. The warriors are here. He couldn't see, but he could still hear. He'd already watched the sword maim dozens of others, and he figured that this wouldn't be any different. The men in the robes announced the warriors by name. And their father's name, and their father's father. The boy still found that most curious. Castless were not allowed to have a family name. Next, the announcer listed their offices and exploits. That part normally took far longer than the test itself, only these introductions were shorter than normal. It sounded as if these warriors hadn't dueled much or attended very many battles. Now the boy really wanted to see if the sword would treat them any differently from the proud ones it had already flayed. My lady, you do us all a great honor by attending this event. I will take up Angruvadal and serve with distinction as your husband did before. Proceed, Haveldar, the angry woman in front of the tapestry commanded. A hushed silence fell over the main chamber. There were footsteps as the first man approached the sword. He must have been very brave because there was no hesitation, just the scraping of metal on stone as the sword was lifted. The boy could feel the tension. All of the observers were holding their breath. Could this be the one? Then the screaming began. 
Nope. The screaming abruptly stopped. The sword must have really disapproved of this warrior, because it had not taken long to make its decision. From the noise and the gasps of the crowd, it had been a particularly violent death. The woman of the first caste swore beneath her breath, but the boy was close enough that he was surprised to learn that even the highest of the high used the same profanity as the lowest of the low. Next, she snapped. This warrior sounded much younger and not nearly so cocky. I will do my best, my lady. Luckily, the man in front of the alcove had stepped to the side so the boy could peek out again. The first warrior had stabbed himself through the chest, and it looked like he'd done a messy job yanking it back out through his guts. This one was going to be at least a five-bucket job. Sadly, he was bleeding out right on top of the palest stone in the entire floor. The boy would be scrubbing until his hands were raw tonight. The second warrior was standing by the sword, looking flushed and timid. As usual, the dying man had flung the sword clear across the chamber. Maybe that was why the witnesses tried to stand so far away, so as to not be sliced by accident, as a disemboweled warrior flailed about. Despite just ripping a man in half, the gleaming black sword was clean. Wearing an expression like he was about to pet a cobra, he knelt down and extended one hand, but hesitated. Do it, the lady of the house ordered. He did. The warrior slowly lifted the sword from the floor. He grimaced when the handle bit into his hand. The boy didn't know why the sword did that. Maybe it wanted to taste them first. He stood up straight, held the sword pointed at nothing, and waited for its decision. This one had an honest face, so the boy hoped that the sword wouldn't be too hard on him. Several seconds passed. The crowd was growing hopeful. They began to whisper excitedly. But the boy could already tell this wasn't right. The man was concentrating so hard that he was red-faced and sweating. Veins were standing out in his forehead and neck. This warrior was the strongest one yet, and he was most certainly a good man, but he wasn't the right man. Then it was as if the warrior's limbs moved on their own. The muscles in his arm twitched and contracted. The dark blade flashed, and he gasped as it parted his flesh. The sword clattered back to the stone at his feet. He stepped back, one hand pressed to the long, weeping cut on his other arm. It wasn't even deep enough to sever any tendons. It had only cut him enough to teach him a lesson. The sword must have really liked this particular warrior. Forgive me, the young man said through gritted teeth. I was found wanting. What did you see? The woman demanded. So much. It was as if he didn't know how to put it into words. It was as if the eyes of every warrior who has carried this blade before were upon me. There's a thousand years of courage stored within, waiting for something. The warrior stumbled, then fell over on his backside. The men in uniform went to him to staunch the bleeding. I'm sorry, my lady. I'm becoming a bit faint.
Get out, she snapped. All of you, be gone from my house. Come back when you have someone worth a damn. The boy was glad the sword hadn't chosen yet, because when it finally did, he'd have to give up his comfy job of blood scrubber. It would be dawn soon. He'd spent the entire night cleaning the pale stones. He'd scrubbed until his fingers had grown soft and his calluses had begun peeling off. He had to be careful not to add his own blood to the mess. So he'd torn scraps from the bottom of his shirt and wrapped his fingers so he could continue. Up and down the stairs, he'd carried that bucket so many times. Down red, up clean, over and over until he was satisfied that the main chamber was perfect. The house slaves told him that this big room was normally only used for parties, where members of the first caste and the highest-ranking warriors and richest workers would gather to dance and eat more meat than the entire casteless quarter would consume in a season. He suspected they were teasing him. The boy had not seen the other castless since they'd taken the warrior's body to the furnace. There were guards patrolling inside the great house, but they didn't pay any attention to him. He'd be inspected by the overseer when he was dismissed to make sure he hadn't stolen anything. It was just the boy and the sword in the main chamber, so there was no one to punish him for speaking. He had been alone with the sword so many times over the last few weeks that it had become his only friend. Why did you spare the last warrior? The boy asked the sword as he inspected the seams for any errant spatter. Of course, the sword did not answer. The only time it made any sound was when it was whistling through the air or hacking through bone. Why do you only hurt some but kill others? I think it is because you like them better. The whole men think they know you, but I don't think they do. The sword lay there, as long as he was tall, and made out of some dark metal that he'd never seen before. The boy walked around it carefully. You don't have ears, so you probably can't hear me. But mother says I talk just to hear myself anyway. You don't have a mouth to talk but you still let everybody know what you think. It was hard to find tiny specks of blood by lantern light alone. And a few times he found himself picking at something that was actually a brown spot on the rock itself. Even though he'd practically memorized every single stone set in the floor, he scrubbed at them just in case. I probably shouldn't talk to you because I'm not a real person. But you're not a person either. I don't know what the law says about that. Then he noticed a fat drop of blood that he'd somehow missed, but only because it was beneath the sword. The boy was suddenly very afraid. That had never happened before. I mop around you every night but I can't mop under you, the boy said. I could slosh some water on you. The tools the older castless were issued sometimes rusted. Could this sword rust? If the whole men would have him severely beaten for missing a drop of blood, they'd surely murder him for making the magic sword rust.
Very carefully, he reached for the drop with his rag-wrapped fingertips. He didn't know what the parts of the sword were called, but the part that protected the fingers was resting on the floor and lifted up the part the warriors tried to handle. If he was careful, he could sneak under that without touching anything. He bumped it with one shaking knuckle. I mean, no disrespect. The sword didn't answer, but since it didn't remove his fingers, it didn't seem to mind. He wiped away the blood with a fingertip, but there was still a stain there on the stone. If he let it sit, it would become a permanent blemish on House Vidal, and he'd be beaten to death for it. There had to be a way to move the sword without offending it. They'd put it here somehow, after the Thakur had died after all. But he was not a trained warrior. He was a child of the non-people. He didn't know any other way. Forgive me, sword. But I have to fulfill my duty. The boy looked at the filthy rags wrapped around his hands. That would not do. It would be wrong to touch the sword with something dirty. So he unwound them until it was just raw, clean skin. Then he took a deep breath, reached out, and took hold of the handle. It was far lighter than it looked. The sword bit into his palm. The guards found him some time later, lying on the floor, barely conscious, and raised the alarm. Weak, confused, it was like waking up from a bad nightmare. And when the boy realized he was still holding onto the sword, he began to panic. I'm sorry. Hot tears began to stream down his cheeks. Please don't kill me. But the intimidating guard seemed more terrified by this development than he was. Most of them seemed too stunned to react and stood there clutching nervously at their swords. One ran for help. Another even dropped to his knees, bowing to the boy, as if he was of the highest caste. I was only trying to clean the blood, the boy cried. Take it back. But his fingers would not unclench from the hilt. He tried to pry them off with his other hand, but they wouldn't budge. He managed to get to his feet. The tip of the sword was dragging along the floor and slicing through the stone. I'm sorry. He lifted the sword so it would do no more harm. I'll fix that, I promise. The boy turned in a circle and found that he was surrounded by warriors. Each one took a fearful step back as the blade pointed at him. Even in the hands of a child, there was no mistaking how incredibly lethal the sword was. Why have I been awakened? It was the woman. The angry one all of the warriors deferred to, the one who was in charge, the one who was going to have him whipped to death in the dungeons for his insolence. Then she was staring right through the boy at the sword he was waving about, and her expression changed from icy rage to shock. The blood scrubber picked up the ancestor blade, one of the guards explained. As if Angruvadel would choose a castless. 
she began to laugh. Only it was a bitter, mirthless sound. Give it a moment and he'll slice his own throat. He's been holding it for several minutes, milady. It doesn't appear to be turning on him. Well, oceans. This is impossible, one of the guards stammered. Only the best warrior may take up the sword. This has never happened before. As far as anyone knows, it isn't happening now. The woman appeared to be deep in thought. She frowned at the boy. Do not speak a word about this to anyone. Summon my advisors. Are you comfortable, child? The woman asked him. The boy nodded. The lady of the great house didn't seem so angry with him now. Good. Drink up. They'd given him some cushions to sit on and a cup of wine. He was still scared, but something in the drink had made him very sleepy. The sword had finally allowed his fingers to release it, so it was resting at his side. Though he wished they would, no one had tried to take the sword from him yet. I'm sorry I took it. He was having a hard time speaking. It was like his tongue was too big for his mouth. You can have your sword back. I'm afraid it doesn't work that way, child. An ancestor blade cannot simply be given or taken. A few other members of the first cast had joined them, and then they'd gone to a smaller, more private room. It was covered in silks, softer than anything he'd ever felt before, and the air was filled with perfumes that made his face itch. The woman in charge was named Bidea, because that's what the other important whole men called her, except for the youngest one who kept calling her mother. The young man was pacing back and forth nervously while the others sat. The boy was very sleepy, but he could tell that the young man was very upset, even more so than the others, or maybe he wasn't good at hiding it yet. You should have had the guards execute the little fish-eater on the spot. That would have been foolish, Hatter. One of the old men in robes stated. He had white hair and a bushy beard. Your mother was wise to proceed cautiously. What's done is done. Mangruvadal chose this castless for some unknowable reason. He is the bearer now, and one does not simply execute a bearer. Speaking of which, the young man stopped his pacing long enough to look the boy over. Are we in danger? What's to stop it from slaughtering us all? Besides the fact that he's probably only five or six years old and the sword is bigger than he is? Medea snorted. Calm yourself, the boy is no danger. His drink is laced with a bit of the sleeping poppy. I'm surprised he's still awake at all. You should have just poisoned it and saved us all the trouble, Harter complained. That would be unwise, the old man said. The sword has spoken. If we went against its wishes, Angruvadal might construe that as an act of treachery. 
To murder the bearer of an ancestor blade is a terrible dishonor against a house. Traditionally, the only way to remove a bearer is through a proper duel. And he is far too young to legally enter into a duel. Damn it, Chavans! The judges don't have to know, Harter shouted. I'm not worried about what the judges think. I'm worried about what the sword thinks. Why do you think there are so few of them left? There were once hundreds of black steel weapons, and now there are only a score, if that many. If the blade feels its house is no longer worthy of protection, then it will perish. The surest way to prove we are unworthy is by murdering its bearer. A duel isn't murder under the law. Neither is falling asleep in the bath, and this stinky little creature could certainly use a bath. No one has ever accused an ancestor blade of having nuance, Harter. If we murder the bearer, no matter how clean we keep our hands, the sword might shatter. So what? Harter waved his hand dismissively. Killing the brat is worth the risk. Even if it breaks, it isn't like father used that sword in decades. There hasn't been a demon washed up on our shores in my lifetime. Vidal is the strongest of the great houses. We don't need to rely on some superstitious artifact when we're this well positioned in the capital. It isn't just the blade itself, but what the blade symbolizes, Chavans argued. Losing our house's sword will make us appear weak, and our allies in the courts will turn on us. I'd rather not have an ancestor blade at all than bear the scorn of having it carried about by a castless scum. Harter kicked a pillow for emphasis. On that point, Air, we are in agreement, Chavan said. However we proceed, no one can ever know of this shame. The sleeping poppy was making it hard for the boy to keep his eyes open, and there was a pleasant humming in his ear. While Chavans and Harter continued their debate, Bidea was absently studying the boy. He'd seen that expression before on the face of a butcher about to take apart a hog. Only he found that he was too tired to care. Harter had gone back to pacing. Worst case scenario, we kill the castlers, the sword shatters, and then we give the shards to Kewl's wizards to play with. I know they're constantly raiding the treasury to buy black steel fragments and demon parts enough as it is. If you believe that's the worst that can happen, then you lack the imagination necessary to someday rule this house, Chavans replied. If this scandal were ever brought to light, it would ruin us. We would become the laughingstock of the council. Our warriors would revolt before they would follow a non-person into battle. The capital would send the protectors to execute us all. Enough, both of you, Medea said. Javans and Harter closed their mouths. She looked over her shoulder at the last person in the room. This man had not spoken this entire time. He was so quiet and unassuming that the boy had nearly forgotten he was there. The boy must go, but we can't jeopardize the sword. What do you think, Kewl? The boy shivered. 
It was a name that was spoken of only with fear and superstition among the castless of House Fidel. From the stories, he'd expected a fire-breathing giant dressed in demon hide, raven feathers, and baby skulls. But Kuhl just seemed like a small, quiet, soft-spoken type. If he'd been castless, he would have been too frail to work, and would have been sent to the pleasure houses to be abused for the whole men's amusement. But everything was different when you could work magic. Kuhl! The terrifying wizard was cleaning beneath his fingernails with a talon that had been cut off a bird of prey. Send him to the protector? He answered absently. What? That seemed to alarm Harter. Are you mad? What would that bunch of fanatics want with it? How does that solve... Medea held up her hand, and the air immediately fell silent. Continue. The answer to our conundrum lies with history. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the lone call of an infected zombie wolf lamenting that zombie wolves are driven to eat fruits and vegetables. Yuck. But also happy that one of the other powers it has been granted is the ability to read John Ringo novels with its eerie new intelligence. As well as thanks, praise, and kudos of those of us who remain after the delusion purgation of life to Mike Massa, co-author with John Ringo of The Valley of Shadows. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 